I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us uh, this evening for uh, a webinar, uh, the Ashbrook Center's Citizen Webinar Series on Civic Education. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Jeff Sickinga. I'm the Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. And those of you who may not know the Ashbrook Center, we're an educational center located at Ashland University in Ohio. Uh, we run programs for students, teachers, and citizens both here at the university, but also across the country. And, and our mission really is to educate our fellow Americans in the history and founding principles of our country. And as an educational center, we really strongly believe that education is not about indoctrination, not even really about information, but about discovery, discovering the truth for yourself. We've, we try to root all our programs in Aristotle's old dictum, that all human beings by nature desire to know. And then we add, but they don't want to be told. <laughs> they want to discover it for themselves. <laughs> so, and we found the best way to discover for yourself is through conversation. So we want to have a conversation this evening uh, about the state of civic education in America. As students are going back to school, what are they learning about America? What should they be learning about our country? join in that conversation this evening, please feel free. Join us through the Q&A function. Uh, you'll see it there on your screen. Delighted to have folks post questions. We'll try to get to as many of those as possible. And for our conversation this evening, I'm delighted and honored to be joined by Professor Wilfred McClay. Uh, Bill is the Victor Davis Hanson Chair in Classical History and Western Civilization at Hillsdale College. Uh, before his current appointment, he was professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and the University of Oklahoma, and before and also has been the Ronald Reagan Professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. He got his he received his bachelor's from St. John's College and his PhD from Johns Hopkins University. Um, Bill is a terrific teacher, a terrific scholar also a widely published author. Uh, many of you may know uh, his books. There are a lot of them, but just a few that stand out to me in looking at his, his long list of impressive works, uh, The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, which won uh, prizes in American history and intellectual history, A Student's Guide to U.S. History, uh, by the published by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and also most recently, and perhaps most famously of his recent works, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story, which I just have to recommend to all of our listeners out there. 
it is a terrific, terrific work uh, and a great service to the country <laughs> and to the American tradition. Uh, besides being a scholar and a teacher and a professor, Bill is also uh, a, a member of many boards engaged civically and publicly. He has been past president recently of the Philadelphia Society, terrific organization, and also on the board of directors of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And we are, at Ashbrook are really honored to have uh, Professor McClay serve on Ashbrook's National Advisory Board on Civic Education. And it was actually in that capacity that he very graciously allowed us to republish an essay by him entitled Civic Education Rightly Understood. Uh, so it's, it's a real honor to have an expert in civic education and the ex and and in the education in the meaning of America, Professor Bill McClay, thanks for joining us. I, it's my pleasure, and I, I hope you don't hear dogs barking in the background. I'm babysitting three dogs at the moment, so. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. We may have to get up and admonish them, but uh, a lot of good that will do. <laughs> they need some well, civic education. That's right. <laughs> um, um, you know, I was struck by your essay that you uh, that Ashbrook uh, republished uh, on civic education rightly understood because you actually call civic education there, uh, you emphasize the importance of citizenship, of educating citizens, young people to be citizens, um, not just the nuts and bolts of knowing how a bill becomes a law, as you put it. Um, but you know, a, a line that struck me and I just like your take on this, help our listeners understand this a little bit more, especially those who may have read the essay already. You actually argue that civic education, and I'll quote you here, is as much a task of the heart as it is of the head. And in fact, you even call it an education in love. Um, now that's not how most people think of their high school no. <laughs> civics classes. What do you mean by that? Well, that, that uh, uh... Uh, an important part of educating young people about what it means to be an American or, or really the citizen of any political entity, but particularly we're talking about America and we're concerned with America and um, with this quality of American citizenship that is um, open to dissent and to making up our own minds about things, Jeff, as you were so nicely putting it in the introduction. So um, we, we have to form uh, uh, young people in a way that they understand that uh, dissent or disagreement or criticism, maybe let's use that word, and love go together. Um, that to, uh, to love your country is not to be uncritical of your country. To be critical of your country is not to, not to fail to love it. Um, that uh, those two things go together, and then it's in fact a, a proper critical view of of your country goes hand in hand with the love of it. Um, and it's really likely that when it's detached from love, when there's a simply a, a kind of icy, detached attitude, that you're going to make wrong judgments about uh, about the the country to which you are connected. Um, whether by birth or by naturalization, um, it is it is a part of us, uh, particularly those of us who are born in the United States. We, it is uh, it, it's something that that comes to us, so to speak, with our mother's milk, 
but that to be worthy of uh, of uh, of that citizenship to have the right understanding of patriotism a patriotic sentiment is not an instinctive thing it's something that has to be um has to be educated you know it has to be refined it it can't just be a sort of gut level visceral you know yahoo kind of uh response that's not enough to be a good citizen of the united states of america it's and i have to say one of the things that i that goes with this is thinking again this is just as unpopular as the, saying this in education and love is that that civic education is a kind of moral formation i think we have shrunk from that idea that um uh that that there's a formative dimension in civic education. It's not enough to instruct young people in how how the system works, how a bill becomes a law, uh, you know, what our rights are, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all those things are important. But one of the things we see today is that even in very well-educated young people, the graduates of Ivy League colleges, there's an absence of a certain kind of formation of the soul that it accepts and understands and revels in the fact that we we are a country we are a, a culture that engages in dialogue in uh polemic in dissent in uh, argument in deliberation that we're we're deliberative we in our best we should be uh, a deliberative democracy uh but to be a deliberative democracy to have citizens who can talk to one another and listen to one another and uh understand the role of ideas the right of ideas to exist that are very different from the ideas that one may hold oneself this is a kind of discipline of the soul isn't it i mean if you think about it it's it's an education in a, in a certain kind of deep regard for the opinions of others and uh a a uh, reluctance a, a really a for forbearing from uh it, feeling that the only uh way to have things right is if everybody agrees or every anybody who disagrees just shuts up um we've had experiences in our history of the right doing that to the rest of the country now we're having the left do it i think for the most part um same problem it's it's a very difficult thing to educate people to um, a society in which there's a give and take in dialogue and discussion uh, and, a, and a recognition that in the end, uh, <laughs> the, once the matter is settled, we go on and peacefully. We don't endlessly litigate issues. Uh, we, we find a, a stopping point and then we go on and maybe we litigate them again in other ways, but but we don't just kind of keep chewing on the same bone. Uh, that that is uh, something that I think we're losing. I think we're losing the idea that that those who don't agree with us have a point of view that deserves our respect and that deserves our listening. Fascinating. I mean, really, that's interesting what you say. Civic education sometimes is thought of as just. Um, um, boosterism, uh, just the love part, just un blind love, uncritical love, uh, seeing everything as perfect in that, you know, sort of romantic way. But then the other part is criticism. 
right? That that mm-hmm. sometimes we th- you, civic education is in many ways nothing but criticism. Uh, and the way that you actually put it in your essay, I, I think you call it p- students are being taught the inglorious story. Yes, right, right. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, simply that uh, it, it's you know it, I just finished doing an online course with a colleague at, here at Hillsdale, and uh, um, it was very interesting. We did a sort of spontaneous summing up discussion, and uh, my colleague felt it really necessary in a way that I found kind of jarring to say in the end, well, of course, we've, we've committed horrible crimes and, and sins and this and that, but uh, we're, in the end, we're really not so bad. And not that I actually disagree with the content of that, but it, it was done in a way that struck me as, um, and I guess I'm criticizing my colleague here, and I don't really want to do that, but um, that it was done in a way that was sort of a, a reflex. We're developing a reflex that um, to apologize for our failings, which are many and and genuine. Um, you know, it's, it's the only way to to avoid uh, for a nation state to avoid uh, those kinds of failures is to attempt nothing, uh, or to, to attempt very little. Uh, and uh, we've attempted much. We've been audacious as a as a country, and uh, we've had many many more successes than failures. The failures are particularly heinous because they go against our creedal assertions about what kind of people we are. And I think it's painful. I think we need to confront that. That should needs to be part of civic education. But to um, uh, to ignore or give short shrift to the magnificence of our history, to the, to the <laughs> many astonishing things that we have done um, in um, in particularly in the 20th century, I think, in the, in, in the latter half of the 20th century, um, the Second World War being prime among them. And uh, uh, it, it, the, to fail to give credit to those things, to give um, emphasis to those things, um, is, I think, an even worse failing. Um, and I, one of the things I, I'm concerned about, and this may not be something will strike all of our our participants the uh, same as with me is that I, I, I often Jeff I often think about now about uh, the question of what if I were a young person and my exposure to American history was the kind of thing that I see uh, and by which by the way is part of the reason I wrote Land of Hope is that I wanted to provide an alternative but uh, it, if I were a young person seeing uh, my the country presented in such a negative light by, um, you know, historians and others who ha- have a bit, who are very conscientious people. I know these people. I've lived all my work, lived and worked all my life. And they're not bad people. They're not really, they're not interested in destroying America for the most part. But I'll ask them, I'll ask my colleagues and friends, um, what do you think the cumulative effect of a, of a whole career and a, and a whole department of history at your institution, not true at Hillsdale, by the way, but, but uh, other places I have taught, it, it is true. What's the cumulative effect of all of that being a, presenting a, a, a fundamentally negative and apologizing view for uh, the, our national history? And you know what they all say? It's the same thing. They say, not my problem. 
not my department, not my job. My job is to is to follow the evidence, is to be critical, uh, to uh, yeah, use be, the best practices of the of the the professional training that I received, and that is what is the mark of superior historiography. Um, it's it's uh, not a wrong answer, but I think it's very myopic. It's it's it, there's no um, uh, there needs to be a kind of Hippocratic oath, I think, or something to the effect that of taking into account what the effect is going to be of all the debunking and uh, uh, and and think about what kind of general and overall image of the country it is coming to the minds and hearts of young people. I, I think of, of I have a friend named Harry Ballin, who I, I always feel I should credit him on this, that he's a lawyer in New York, but he has many, many interests. And Harry said to me once over breakfast, he said, you know, I think, and actually this was while I was writing Land of Hope, he said, I think for young people to grow up in a country where they're taught, uh, where they come to believe that they live under a bad regime, it's damaging to their souls. And at first I thought he was being kind of grandiose. Whenever people start talking about the soul, you know, you, you do kind of <laughs> want to sort of wait a minute. But um, the more I thought about it, I thought he, he was putting into very simple language something very profound that I think we've lost. It's a sense that what, um, what, what we teach is uh, about the nature of the regime that they live under, the society they live in. Um, is it fundamentally bad? Is it fundamentally bad? Or is it fundamentally good with um, bad aspects? And you know, that's the kind of judgment that actually a young person does make. Um, is this fundamentally uh, something that I cannot trust, I cannot pledge my allegiance to? that I'd want as much as possible to see myself as being apart from, detached from, alienated from even. And, uh, uh, or do I want to take up the challenge of membership in this society, uh, of a full membership in it, and uh, of um, doing all that I can, both by way of assimilating what, what is known about the past, and taking that heritage as my task for my own life, to take what I've inherited and make it better. That's, that's the way to go. Uh, that's, and that's, I think, a part of, that's a part of civic education as much as teaching people about um, the, the uh, electoral process, the difference between the three branches of government, et cetera, all the things you think of when you think of civics. I think those have to be done. I think a modicum of American history has to be taught. It's very important. I think you can teach the principles, and I'm gonna sound like a historian here, but I think you can teach the principles of separation of powers, checks and balances and all that. But if you look at the historical evolution through, let's say the 17th century and, uh, and uh, English slash British, um, political evolution, you begin to see why um, 
those kind of safeguards are important. We're living through a time now in which leading scholars, two guys from Yale and Harvard Law School, published an article in the New York Times saying we ought to junk the Constitution. I think this is a very short-sighted view, an ill-informed view. It's very presentist, to use a term that, that people like to use. It's very present-minded. You know, we don't like the Supreme Court decision. We don't like uh, the Electoral College because it keeps electing the wrong people. Um, therefore, uh, we're, we're gonna, you know, simply eviscerate the Constitution. Um, you know, there's all sorts of examples of constitutional amendments that the people, uh, you know, uh, who pressed those, you know, the limitation of the president to two terms. Uh, the Republicans might have liked to have had that one back in the Reagan administration, but, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons you don't tinker lightly with the Constitution, is right. that you think through what, what are the general effects, not just what you can get in the short run. So, so anyway, I think that the, the, um, the, the, I would just say finally that I think actually has certain reverence for the Constitution, getting back to the issue of love, um, is requisite. Madison thought this. And Jefferson, of course, thought, yeah, you should change everything, have a revolution every 15 minutes and change the government every 20 years. And, yeah, all kinds of things he would say uh, in his letters. Um, even Washington did not expect, George Washington did not expect the Constitution to last. It, to have it be around 230 plus years and counting would have astonished him. I think this is a great achievement and a, a not, not uh, uh, something to be taken lightly because the, the, the principles animating the Constitution are as sound as ever, particularly about the dangers of the concentration of power. Um, we see this all the time now. So you, well, you mentioned though, thinking about, again, love on one side, criticism on the other, and, and putting them together in the right way, informing the hearts and minds of young people. Um, honest historians, your friends and colleagues in the history profession, who, as you say, might not be intending to destroy America, but they are, <laughs> um, they're, they're not thinking about the effects of their continual, uh, merely critical approach to teaching young people. But then it, it, what about others? Take, for example, probably the most obvious public in, in immediately today important example of that kind of critical approach to America, the 1619 Project. Um, mm -hmm. is, would you consider that also honest history? Or is something oh, no, and look, I, I don't know any respectable historian who um, would defend the 1619 Project as, as good history. Uh, maybe there is, maybe there is one, but certainly uh, the, the, several of the people I most respect in the historical profession, uh, who are none of whom are conservatives, um, uh, immediately came out and said, "This is outrageous. This is not." Um, uh, and some of the, you know, the, 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 I don't want to get into all the ways that this has been a kind of dishonest undertaking. They've even edited, uh, surreptitiously edited. Uh, copy on the website, as Philip Magnus has uh, found out uh, through some amazing detective work. Um, it's a journalistic project. That's that's the bottom line. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, the the mastermind behind this, I think, uh, either her or Jake Silverstein of the New York Times, but uh, uh, 
she said as much. She said, we, we didn't really think of this as a, 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 a revision of history. We thought of it as a way of saying, let's reimagine the narrative, uh, the historical narrative. Uh, and uh, what if we began with the idea that the introduction of slaves into what would then later become the United States um, in 1619 at Jamestown, that, that that's the real beginning of American history, not just the beginning, it's the founding, it's the true founding. Um, it's, uh, and that the foundation of American history is the oppression of slavery, of, uh, of bondage, of chattel slavery. Uh, um, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's an audacious thing and not in a good way. I think it's been, uh, it's, it's going to be, leave its mark for a long time. There's a lot of free materials that the Pulitzer Center people are putting out that reflect this perspective. And, um, and really they have not been answerable for it. I mean, one of the things we historians do, we don't do it as well as we used to, but we do uh, at our conventions and other venues, we, uh, we are forced to defend ourselves, to, to answer our critics. Uh, the Times have never done that. They've never condescended to do that. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious why that, that, that there's too much about the project that's indefensible. But let me defend one thing about it, okay? To surprise you. Um, yes. Uh, that, that, well, I, I think the idea of having a commemoration, a recognition of the 400th anniversary of the year 1619, which is what this all happened in 2019. Um, I don't think that was a bad idea because uh, I think, um, I think of one of the, my favorite passages in, in um, W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Souls of Blackfoot, wonderful book that everyone should read. And the chapter on the sorrow songs, that is the spirituals, uh, what we used to call the Negro spirituals uh, in, in a previous, you know, <laughs> era. Um, uh, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, go down Moses, etc. Um, it's a wonderful treatment of them as an expression of the, of the emotional and spiritual life of a captive people. Um, and he sees it as a great contribution to American culture. But he says at one point the following, you know, um, what, you know, what would America be without its, its black, without its African people? And he says, you know, before the Mayflower arrived, we were here. And that's 1619 is one year before 1620. So yes, uh, I, and I, I think that's an important point that could have been the point made by the 1619 project. It could have said, look, Africans in America are not a sidebar. They're not just a kind of little fluky thing that happened on the side. Um, they, are, they, are, they are a part of American history and always have been from the start. Uh, David Hackett Fish has just published this amazing book, African Founders, which I think makes something of the same point. It's going almost completely unnoticed. I'm going to do a review of it, and Alan Gelso has done a great review of it. And so um, we'll get some word out about it. But it's because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear 
the atmosphere of 1619 is to accentuate the negative, to say anti-Black racism has been part of our national DNA from the beginning. Um, well, you know, uh, uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of evidence for the contrary pro uh, proposition that uh, Africans in America have always been central to what America is. And, and yes, we, we, we could write our histories better um, if we did a better job of recognizing that and acknowledging it and, and making that a, a thematic aspect of, of what we do. I, I saw today that the college board is going to do an advanced place test, advanced placement test now in African-American history. And I, 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 uh, I have no, done nothing except read the New York Times' article about this, so I'm not particularly well informed, but I, I don't think this is a particularly good idea. I think it enforces, it reinforces uh, the, the, the sidebar, the idea that African-American history is, uh, is something apart from American history. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it, it's, it's a close call, really. I, I can see the merit of it, but I also then can see the merit of any other a large ethnic group, say Catholic history, big. You could do a lot with that, have a, an AP course in, in American Catholic history. But that's not going to happen. And the, the political stars are not in alignment to do that. But I think, so I think that, uh, Getting back to 1619, I think we could have, there's another way that 1619 could have been emphasized. And that is that it was not only the year of the first enslaved individuals being uh, deposited in, uh, in what would become the United States in Jamestown. It's also the year that Virginia created the first representative legislative assembly, the House of Burgesses, a, a, a remarkable, uh, development in the history of American uh, self-rule, of self-government, of self-governing institutions, of institutions built on the notion of the consent of the governed, which would figure so prominently then in the language of the Declaration of Independence. Um, both of these things happened. The, the, the introduction of enslaved people, who did not say enslaved, by the way, they became indentured servants because there was no uh, provision under the English common law for slavery, um, it was it would be a number of decades later before slavery as a legal institution would come to Virginia. And it's a shameful part of our history, but it didn't happen immediately in 1619. Anyway, you have these two different strands, two different doorways into the future open. And, and one of the doorways, frankly, is a doorway to the past, to the long history of uh, the domination of the strong over the weak, over the, the kind of lawlessness uh, that had governed the institution of slavery and its, its cognates for all of human history. You know, the, the Caribbean was full of slavery when Columbus arrived. He didn't invent it. Uh, uh, Americans didn't invent it. We invented anti-slavery. Uh, we, we have the first anti-slavery organization in the world. Um, so it's a complicated story, and it's not without many blemishes, and those blemishes should be acknowledged. But I think in the end, um, I don't even say that teachers should all celebrate, end up celebrating American history. That's what I do. 
I don't think other people may come to other conclusions, but you got to be fair. You got to be fair and acknowledge uh, the greatness, the great achievements. And you may think that they came at too great a human cost. Fine, make that case. Um, but make the case. Don't uh, uh, don't simply assert it, uh, as I think is so often the case. Don't present it as an assumption. And don't do young people the service of telling them none of the things that are admirable about uh, about their nation and its history and, its, and the structure of its institutions. So in, in thinking about this combination of criticism and love, critical love, as you said, um, I was struck by one of the things in, you, in your essay where you talked about the Abraham Lincoln's civic education, which is pretty interesting given the fact that Lincoln really had almost no formal schooling, certainly never went to college. Um, he read himself, um, but he really had no benefit of a teacher or any kind of organized educational system. Uh, what's almost whatsoever. But you talked about Lincoln's reading of stories, in particular, yeah. Parson Weems' stories of George yes. Washington. Tell us about the kind of education that Abraham Lincoln got and how it shaped his American heart and mind. Well, that's a great question. And it does, uh, it, there's all sorts of things that come out from it, including the fact that maybe, um, <laughs> Maybe our schools are really, uh, um, uh, I won't say unnecessary, but they're they're definitely falling down on the job. In comparison to a man like Abraham Lincoln, who admittedly was a little engine of ambition, as his law partner said, it was a um, extraordinarily driven man. But he uh, he had virtually no form education. And uh, he was, he educated himself through his reading. Uh, he read everything he gets hands on. Of course, you know, it's well known that he read all of Shakespeare's plays and had certain favorites like Macbeth, um, a, good, a, good, a good play for a political leader. Um, and uh, and, and uh, the King James Bible, uh, the effects of which you can see in some of his truly magnificent speeches toward the end of his life, end of his career, uh, the cadences, the sense of the syntax, the the the, the word choice, the the weighting of words, it, it all is so uh, redolent of the of the King James Bible um, and and of Shakespearean uh, English. So Lincoln Lincoln had he he had a. a in a way, a superior education because he didn't go to school, although school schoolboys and they were mainly boys at that time did study those those texts. Anyway, um, he he be, the thing that I point out in this article that I think you're thinking of Jeff is that Lincoln didn't read much history. He read a lot of literature. He read you know um, all sorts of things having to do with the law and political issues, but he didn't read a lot of history. As a young man, anyway. But we do know that he read Parson Weems' biography of George Washington, which was uh, published in 1799, right after Washington's death. Um, is is often the sort of the Platonic ideal in, in the mind of historians of a um, unreliable, um, hagiographical hey, work of history, and the you know. 
of course, the famous story about Washington chopping down the cherry tree and admitting to it because he couldn't, he could not lie, he, and, and a sign of his his virtuousness uh, that he that he was honest. Um, but there's more to the book than that. And uh, Lincoln read it. He remembered it. Uh, and 40 years later, uh, he, he's been elected president. He's not yet uh, been inaugurated. He's traveling across the country to from Springfield to Washington to accept his position. And he stops over in New Jersey um, in Trenton and gives a speech both to the lower and upper houses of Trenton, uh, of the uh, New Jersey legislature. And um, the one the speech to the Senate is the one that, that I referenced because he, it's very short, a very short speech, but he says, you know, um, I paraphrase here, I, I don't have Lincoln's gifts of fiction. Um, he says, you know, it's really great to be here um, because uh, I remember reading as a young man, as a young boy, uh, about um, uh, the uh, the exploits of, uh, of Americans in the battles, the famous important battles, especially the battle at Trenton, um, and all that was entailed. And he goes through a, a short list of descriptive details about the, the, uh, the Hessians and, uh, and, and the heated battles and so on. And then, then he says this, I realized, even as a young boy, that something more was at stake than just winning a battle. Something more was at stake even than uh, the vindication of the revolutionary cause, that it was something that would carry a meaning for all of humanity, for all time. Um, and um, now, you, you could say, you could be cynical and say, as most of my colleagues are, and say, well, sure, he's in, he's in New Jersey. He's, he's speaking to New Jersey, New Jersey legislature. He's going to say that what happened here in Trenton was the most important thing in all of human history. Um, well, okay. But he didn't say anything false. And uh, he, what he said was entirely believable. He did remember the book. Um, he did remember the book. And my point about that is that this story about the Battle of Trenton, about the heroism of, of the revolutionary patriots at a time when their back was to the wall, stuck with him and gave him strength, gave him uh, encouragement and courage uh, to face the challenge that he was facing, which was much worse in some ways, that as he was making that trip to Washington, the southern states were seceding left and right. Um, there's reason to wonder whether it would be a country there by the time, you know, March rolled around and he's inaugurated. So uh, it, it's, it's, that's a really wonderful example. I'm so glad you brought it up, Jeff. That a, a wonderful example of the way that a knowledge of the past doesn't have to be a dry academic exercise or uh, an exercise in national self-flagellation. Um, it, it also can be a source of strength, a source of insight, a source of wisdom, a source of, of energy and encouragement, um, uh, helping us to see that the, the um, people of the past have faced, of our past, have faced enormous challenges and, and yet uh, been able to overcome them.
And that's, I think, exactly the kind of thing that young people today need to hear. Um, they need to hear that, 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 we've, that we've done it before. We've, we've beaten the odds before. Um, they don't need to have a sugar-coated version of the history to nevertheless get that point. Um, and uh, that let's, we can do it again. Uh, we can do it again. We can pull together. Um, Lincoln said, and he was the only one, lots of people said this, if America falls, it won't be from an external enemy, it'll be an internal dissolution, that we will lose our own cohesion, we'll lose faith in ourselves. And that I think is one of the great challenges of right now. I think that, and I do think maleducation uh, in civics has been a contributing factor. I don't want to attribute too much importance, exaggerate it, but I also don't want to neglect the importance of this. I often think, and here's where, where I could be accused of exaggerating, that, uh, but I'm going to go ahead anyway, <laughs> is um, if you look at the statistics for suicides, for various forms of mental illness, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, opioid deaths, et cetera, that um, just keep going up and up and up, and uh, particularly for younger people. You look at the, the sense of discouragement, and I teach them, and I, I, I have to say our students at Hilltop College are joy teach. You don't see a lot of, uh, lot of that kind of thing here, but I certainly did among the other places I thought. And uh, that's wrong. That's, that's, uh, that, 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 that shouldn't be happening. We, this is still a land of opportunity. This is still a remarkably prosperous country in which there's plenty of room or plenty of scope for individual ambition to realize itself. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of freedom, which we regularly abuse. That's what, isn't that what freedom's for, to abuse it? But seriously, um, uh, that it's abused is a sign that we have it. Um, and uh, I think it's frivolous, it's unserious to imagine we'd be better off without it. Uh, that's really part of the core of what we are. Um, to me, it's really interesting, Bill, that you say that because you know we run uh, high school programs here at Ashbrook Summer Academies where we bring in high school students, and one of them that we one of them we call is telling America's story. And it strikes me in my experience with those students that when they start to hear the story of America and founding of self-government and a crisis of self-government with people like Abraham Lincoln, and then the struggle to sort of fulfill American self-government in the 20th century, they start to see themselves in a way, as you said, connected to a larger mm -hmm. enterprise. That's a, yeah. that is not without blemishes, but has a kind of, it's morally inspiring. It's uplifting to them to hear that story and to know it's not just a bunch of random facts or not just all blemishes, but part of a larger thing that has meaning and makes some yeah. sense for them as young people. And I wanted to ask you, because you call your book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. Why do you think it's so important to um, teach civic education through story, the kind of stories that Lincoln learned when he read Parson Weems? Mm, well, I think that um, stories, um, stories are the way we explain the world to ourselves, ultimately, you know, um, 
it's uh and the stories are you know one of the thing, great things about stories is they can carry a lot of details and a lot of complexity in them you you can you can tell a story that's a complicated story and yet a true story um but think of for example just think of everyday speech you know we say um you know you and i are together and we encounter a sort of odd person with odd opinions and he walks away and you look at me and say what's his story yeah <laughs> you know uh, and, and it really does That's right the identity um of this man um this peculiar man is there's an implication there that the only way to understand who he is is going to be to tell his story to tell a story about him well he was you know he's brought up this way and he moved from here to there and you know and it's uh you know fill in the details but uh uh it it's in some way in which story and identity are uh are, are joined and i think it's important with america because in america here's a, another analogy i've used uh is with people have uh, you know i'm on the semi-quincentennial commission of the, the government and it's a uh, very difficult to get any progress because everybody wants to have only their side of things reflected and i have appealed i don't think with much success to uh, people on the commission saying look we should think of the 2050th anniversary of the country as being something like a reunion of one of those huge families um and um you know the smiths of uh the southeast uh united states they all gather at some place there's like a thousand of the two thousand you know it's a huge family um most everybody knows or at least knows of everybody else they sort out you know the the people who are, uh, politics are different are over here and over here uh the the, the people who uh you know went through the divorce or the separation or the family feud or, or whatever um that's all reflected but there's a larger umbrella story of being the smith family that they're all there even with all their gripes against one another even with all their wounded pride even with all their sense of uh of being um uh uh unfairly judged by the others uh or in themselves unfairly judging others even with all that there's still a story and i i think that's a, an interesting way to think about um the united states we're 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 kind of on a journey together um through time um we've been through almost a, a quarter of a millennium that's a lot of time um and with the same constitution most of that time, uh, what uh, uh, what are the commonalities that we have? That's um, one trend. I may be getting a little off the subject here, but the one trend in civic education has been to emphasize diversity. I've seen this. Uh, there's a state I won't name, but I'm evaluating their their social studies standards, and it's just there's no indication that any we have anything in common other than this immense amount of diversity and this is not only debilitating it's wrong it's simply wrong of course we have much in common we have an enormous amount in common and young people shouldn't 
be taught about diversity without being taught about unity or without being taught about you know commonalities without being taught about membership that's a word that means a lot to me is that that sharing membership in the same society so i i um um you know that's really <laughs> i don't think i need to beat that that horse anymore but you get what i'm saying sure absolutely and that's a fascinating response and we, of course we have a number of questions from our listeners but one Good. following up on this a questioner asks um what do you see then as our common bond if if it's a story and there's a unity what 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 are the things that you see in the story that bring americans together as a people well uh, I, and i don't want to be uh, evasive in answering that question but but I want to point out that um, part of what the question is asking me to do is to extract from the story some propositional statement about the story, and uh, which, in a way, is exactly what a story uh, doesn't do. A story is not a propositional statement. A story, America is about freedom. Well, what does that mean? And, you know, and then we are on, off into a series of propositional statements. Um, but okay, having made that minor evasive tactic, I'll, I'll say that uh, I think there, there, is, there are certain uh, values that we share in common. And of course, one of them is our sense of the value of freedom. One of them is a, 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 uh, an esti high estimation of equality. Um, uh, the, a preference for the ideal of self-government people get to govern themselves to choose for themselves how would they would like to live um uh a respect all the sort of first amendment uh, restrictions on uh what what government can do with regard to speech with regard to press with regard to assembly those those things all i think matter enormously to us and to to everybody um uh, you know, I mean, yes, you could find people who are opposed to freedom of speech, but um, it's not a, uh, it's not really a serious widespread position. I mean, it's not a position widespread as a, in a serious tone um, in the press and, and so on. Freedom of religion. Um, now there are people who would like freedom from religion, um, and that's a, that's a legitimate point of view, uh, but it's not incompatible with the First Amendment, the language of the First Amendment as it's drafted. So I, I think after a lot of the commonalities, you notice in my answer, I mean, a lot of the commonalities drift back towards this Constitution. And I think one of the reasons I'm so hot to keep the Constitution and defend it is that I think it's precisely because of our diversity in other ways that we need some rock solid uh, solidities uh, to recur to um, if we're going to have such a remarkably diverse culture in which, you know, there's a diversity of um, all kinds of very fundamental things having to do with lifestyles and, uh, um, uh, you know, the general philosophical outlook. I still think that the language of the Declaration, the, the, uh, the opening paragraphs of the Declaration, is very serviceable or uh i don't see anything in there that is likely to be particularly objectionable to to a lot of americans um 
maybe some, because there's always somebody who's going to object to anything, but but not a widespread objection. I think uh, I don't think this is as hard as difficult as we sometimes make it. Uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had was I was a Fulbright professor in Italy for a year, and uh, um, and I remember having discussions with my students. I taught graduate students only, and they were um, Italians, as you may know, are very still very uh, regional in their mentality. People think of themselves as, you know, being from Genoa or Tuscany or or, or whatever. And and um, uh, and in fact, one class I was talking about. Don't you think there's such a thing as Italian national character? And and one of my students, a very beloved student who I'm still in touch with, said. Uh, Professor McClay, when I, we hear people talk about Italia, we assume he's a fascist. So, so Italians, the idea of national character is something they're very averse to. But I said, well, would you say the same thing about Americans? Oh, no. Americans, my God, if there's any people on earth that have a national character you can identify, it's Americans. I can tell an American walking down the street. Uh, yeah, I can tell the difference between an African American and a, and a and a Nigerian or whatever, just to look at it, uh, just to look at the way he walks, and, and they insist on this. And any anybody who's traveled I, you, you, in, in Europe, elsewhere, you, you run into the same thing. There's something. There is an American. Uh, there is an Americanness about about Americans that other people notice. Um, it's not easily defined. But um, it's there, and it does seem to me that um, uh, it would be good for us to understand it better. Yeah, that's a that's a worthy admonition. <laughs> a fascinating story of America, insightful, interesting, inspiring, perplexing, even sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, so interesting. That's why I love the title of your book, "Land of Hope." Uh, that's a great title. Um, Bill McClay, thank you so much for oh, taking gosh. time to join us for the conversation. Uh, really deeply. And let me just say, I, I'm a great admirer. Of, I mean, I, I'm kind of have a conflict of interest here since I do serve on the board. But I think that for year in and year out through a succession of leaders, uh, Ashbrook has been a very important force in uh, in, in, in dealing with these these very issues, that the, the need to have a conscious appropriation of our heritage, that we can't just waltz into it mindlessly um, uh, by watching, you know, rock, uh, music videos and playing video games, what, whatever, uh, TikTok. We can't just waltz into a knowledge of who and what we are. We have to know. We have to know about the past. There's no such that, that is truly what we believe we that we need to understand our history and our principles so bill thank you for again for taking the time to join us this evening My for pleasure. our listeners um appreciate if you want to know more about ashbrook you can look us up online of course at ashbrook.org uh, for teachers who may be joining us you can look us uh, up us up at teachingamericanhistory.org or th.org uh those of you who are with us will be sent a link to a recording of this uh, conversation. Please feel free to share with your friends, your family, your colleagues. We'd love to get the word out far and wide, the young people in your life, your children, your grandchildren, who need to hear this kind of conversation and know the kind of education about America that they should be getting. 
the kind of Professor McClay talked about tonight. We really believe that you have these kind of conversations. They do renew your hope in America. They do renew your hope in the possibility of that kind of education of the heart and mind that Professor McClay was talking about. So again, I want to thank you all for joining us. And as always, we end by saying stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.